Hello, and you are listening to Squash Radio. This is a brand new podcast that wants to bring the inside of squash to life by serving up the best stories. This whole station was a little experiment in itself. We are pushing this even further by testing new ways of getting you these stories. We now have short five to 10 minute video recaps available online. We are trying shorter interviews, capturing people in their moment. And coming up, we are teaming up with some people to do some on-site coverage of events since we can't be everywhere. But here's where we need some help. We are still very small, but have big dreams. Can you help us get the word out, spread the news? Small things could help, like do you have a website and want to embed Squash Radio? We can share simple code and boom, Squash Radio can be right there with new episodes automatically downloaded. Or support us on social media. Any of these things would be extremely appreciated. Want to get in touch with us? Well, there are lots of ways. Any of the social media messaging apps or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, Squash fans, and welcome back to Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. Today we sit down with a guest who, through his sheer passion and work ethic, has been instrumental in the growth of squash on the West Coast. He completely embodies the elements of an amazing squash coach, where he can charm you with his personality to then deliver incredibly thoughtful and meaningful advice. I'm talking about Richard Elliott, who was most recently the assistant squash coach at Stanford University. Richard is originally from England, and at a young age of 16, he had already decided that squash was his calling in life. He started his coaching career in Europe, where he did that for almost 10 years before coming to the West Coast in 1995. So with over 30 years of experience, as well as attaining a level three English coaching certification, we naturally spend time digging into his coaching style and philosophy, as well as some other important life lessons he's picked up along the way that he shares with his students and all of us. We also spend some time talking about his perspective on squash in the United States and how it's evolved over the past 20 years at both the junior and collegiate level. So that's a very rough overview of what we talk about today. But we're going to sit down with Richard again and do another deep dive, talking about the beginnings of the professional event in San Francisco he helped to start the NetSuite Open, but also talk more about his new venture that he's embarking on, which is to start a new squash club with a fantastic mission. So without further ado, here you go. First, I want to play you a quick clip that I think encapsulates Richard perfectly. I, lo- I, lo- I, love, I love what I do. And I think um, if, anybody, if anybody does listen to this, I hope that comes through because I really feel privileged, honored to be, to do what I do for a living. And I absolutely love it. And I, I've never seen myself doing anything else. And I don't know what I would do, but I just love what I do. And I think that's, you know, if you have passion for something, I think, um, and you work, you have a good work ethic, I think you can be, whatever it is, whatever field you're going to be, I think you're going to be successful, especially in the US. I think the opportunities to be successful here, um, if you're, if you are competent at what you do and you love what you do and you have that work ethic, I think it's attainable. 
Now we join our conversation where Richard talks us through a vivid memory from his early days of playing squash, where he learned a tremendously important life lesson he still values to this day. Quick note, there is a slight skip from where I made an edit to this episode. And then before you know it, you're actually maybe making the final of a consolation draw. I can vividly remember my very first consolation final and I think it was a a regional tournament that was a bigger thing and I completely and utterly choked I was I won (laughs) I I won I won the first game you know I was I was much better than this than the kid I played I I mean I can look him back obviously at the time you don't realize that but I was much better than the kid and uh, he was just more experienced he played a lot more than I had and there's no uh, I know it's a cliche there's no substitute I won the first game nine then it was to nine it was nine zero and I honestly don't believe the kids if he, 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 I don't even think he served so he might have won one rally but he, it was definitely nine love and then I proceeded to completely implode um, and it was purely lack of experience you know yeah. i thought oh and obviously the prize was there and you're thinking oh i'm gonna yeah, yeah. consolation and and it, again like i say to a thousand start times thinking more about the the result the, versus the game all of, point just, yeah. like, like i say to my kids you know what always think process don't think outcome you mm. know but and that's and that's an easy thing to say but when you're in the heat of battle that's a difficult thing to do so in terms of just rewinding or, or overlapping over that, like mm. what did you do to to improve? Like what what was your... You know, and, I think... And, yeah. and quickly, w- was this something that was self-driven or did you have other people helping you through this? Yeah, I, um, my dad, and I love him to bits, was a very, not, a, not in the respect a hard taskmaster. That's because he, he, that wasn't him. But it was always, I guess he, he's was always a little bit probably probably when i look back probably overly critical mm-hmm. so even even on the days when i felt i'd really done well and really you know there would yeah you did you did well but you know there was this which to be honest is is a good way of coaching because then you never he would never let me get ahead of myself it was always i'm sure in his mind even though he didn't realize it and he hadn't played, although he played squash, he didn't play to any level. He was purely intermediate at best. Yeah. But it was, you know, he would really keep me grounded and never really let me get ahead of myself. And okay, you did well and it was good. But I think, you know, actually, I do have a funny story and I'll, please remind me to come back to it because I do have a really funny story. But um, I guess keep me down is not the right way, but I guess keep me grounded. Grounded, yeah. Yeah, keep me grounded and, and realize that, you know what, there's always going to be someone that's better than you and every, every day um, that you're not working hard, someone else is, and then that that gap is going to open up. So he had a, my father has a tr- had a tremendous work ethic, and I think of all the things that he passed on to me, fortunately, that's one of the good things that I, I got, and I, and I definitely – that's really held me in huge stead for, for the rest of my adult life. What's uh, what's the funny story? So um, I was, I want to say I was possibly 16. So by this stage, I'd been, I'd been playing two years at obviously to a very, pretty good level. I was playing county squash. I got to a, a good level in a short space of time. And I owe a lot of gratitude to my first coach. And we'll come back to him later. 
I'd finished with my first coach. He'd offered to coach me. Um, a year after the new facility opened, a new coach came on board, uh, a, a, a gentleman called Graham Drysdale, who coincidentally, his brother was a pro too, but his brother ended up in my high school being my PE teacher because he kind of went backwards and forwards with being a club pro. Anyway, Graham, Graham moved to my club. Um, by that stage, I... I would have said I was probably 15, probably around about 15. And we'd had a, cl- a pro for a year that I didn't really, I wouldn't say I didn't gel with, but my parents weren't big on lessons. It was about figuring it out yourself. Anyway, the new pro yeah. came in, Graham, and they had a squash committee at the club. And Graham said to me, uh, said to the committee, well, who's the best junior? And they said, well, you know what, we think it's, I didn't obviously know this was happening, but we think it's Richard. And so he came to watch me play. And I remember he came to watch me play and uh, one of the committee guys obviously that I was playing a match. And then afterwards he said, Richard, as the, as the best junior and as a, a promotion for obviously for him as the club pro and him coming, he said, I'm going to give you a year of free lessons. Oh, wow. Which, which was huge. Absolutely. I mean, hu- absolutely huge. Yeah. Because my parents would, my, my father, you know, he's a bit old school and um, he, he, he wasn't going to pay for lessons anyway. So I digress. Anyway, I did a, a year with Graham, and then after a year, Graham said, "You know what? You're doing great. Um, we, we're going to train." He was still young, and he was still playing um, tournaments himself. So after a year, we started to train together. In the summer, he said, "You know, do you want to? You know, you've gotten to the point now where we can. You're good enough that we can practice together." Which was an exponential leap in my level because that summer I trained with Graham. Obviously, I'm trying. I'm, I'm 16 years of age. Graham's a professional, um, and and when you're a junior in those days, you didn't really train. You played, but you didn't really train. So get, yeah. getting getting incredibly fit and uh, training that that was a, a quantum leap in my level. With Nick Graham's brother, I'd said to my my dad, there was a neighbouring club maybe ten miles away. I said to my dad, this is a funny. I said, Dad, I really want a lesson with Paul Wright. Paul Wright was the pro at this particular club where Robert Graham played, Paul Lansdale, both coaches now in the US, mm-hmm. good friends of mine. And I said, I want a lesson with Paul Wright. And my dad said, well, why? I said, well, you know, he was ranked in England and he's really good. And my dad said, well, he said, I can tell you, this is what he's going to tell you. So I said, what do you want to say? So he's going to tell you, your cross courts aren't wide enough. You don't volley anywhere enough and your serves are rubbish. <laughs> he, said, he said, your serves are rubbish. I said, no, no, adamant, absolutely adamant. Got, you know, I probably spat my pacifier out. I was, I want a lesson with this guy. Yeah, yeah. So my dad takes me over there and uh, we're on the, this club at an exhibition court. I remember it to this day. So, and my dad is sitting up in the, is it bleachers? Probably a hundred, bleachers for a hundred. For some reason, the bleachers were down. They were, so my dad's sitting right at the back of the bleachers. I'm having the lesson, 45 minute lesson. Dad comes off pays Paul, whatever it was, might've been 10 pounds. I don't know. So dad doesn't say too much. Obviously he's watched the lesson. So we get in the car. So he said, uh, so what, what, did Paul, what did Paul, what did Paul say? <laughs> so, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> so, so what did Paul say? So he said, well, I said, he said, so what did Paul say? And so, well, he said, my serves aren't very good. My cross courts never hit the sideboard and have no width. And he said, and I said, I don't volley enough. He said, well, I could have, I could have given you the ten. You could have given me the ten pound to do that. Which so, and literally, it was spot on, absolutely yeah. spot on. 
And I, <laughs> I've relayed that story to so many of my parents. When they say to me, Richard, he doesn't listen to me, but he listens to you. I said, you know what? He's not going to listen to you. And I tell you, I relay that story and they go, yeah. now I get it. And it was so true. It's exact the three things, the three things my dad had pimp. Obviously, he'd watched me yeah. play hundreds of matches, you know, and it, it, irrespective of the fact that he was a club player at best. And into me, it was obviously, it yeah. was obvious. I mean, it's such an easy game from outside, but you get in there. But I, it's a funny story. And I'll, I'll, I was so, I remember being so sheepish when I got in the car. Because yeah, obviously, yeah. yeah, it was, you know, it's a kind of a funny story. But I've relayed that so many times to the parents when they say, well, will you tell him because he listens to you? I said, well, he listens to me because I, I have credibility. I'm a third party. I'm, I'm out of the, I'm out of the equation. That's how it works. Anyway, that's it's, uh, it's so it's so true. And I think, um, you know, I mean, that that brings up the point of like uh, oftentimes it's the messenger, not the message. And exactly. uh, when I was coaching, <laughs> uh, I actually thought that, um, you know, I should just say everything in a British accent because that would sound better. <laughs> right. You got to hit good depth. You got to keep it wide. Right. Instead of like hit good length, you know, um, yeah. Next, Richard shares his memories of moving from being a squash professional at a commercial club to joining the coaching staff at Stanford University and his experience during that time. I realized I needed to move on. And and fortunately for me, um, I'd been involved on a part-time basis at Stanford in the early 2000s before Mark Tolbert moved from Yale to Stanford Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Mark had said to me, Richard, you know, I'd love you if you could once a week to continue your involvement and come over and help me coach, which was really nice of him. And yeah. so I used to do some part-time stuff. And then, Wait, sorry, when uh, did you start that? They, they, uh, the, the, yeah, the, the guy, I think the men's, uh, not exactly, I think the men's club team formed in 1998. And then they had a coach for a year, I think in 1999 or 2000, they came over to me and I got a call from a couple of the guys that have founded the club team. They said, Richard, could we bring some guys over to have some lessons with you? We don't have a coach now, Um, which was kind of sneaky. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I said, well, the only opportunity to have is is Saturday lunchtime. So they would bring, um, they said, oh, can we bring two or three guys over and you do a session? So I said, great. So um, they came over. Uh, that was early early 2000s before before they had the new facility they had some old courts converted racquetball and some hardball courts and then they brought three guys over we did a we did a session a squad session and they said oh can we come over next saturday too and then they brought three different guys i didn't think too much of it and then the following week they said oh, come and then they brought three different guys and i and i'm sitting down and they said well richard actually we ha- we kind of had an ulterior motive we wanted all the guys to work with you before we ask you this question. Would you would you be prepared to come and coach? We know you have a, a full time position. Would you be prepared to come and coach the Stanford club team, men's team, you know, um, on a part time basis? So that's how my first involvement came with Stanford. So um, I ended up coaching them on my day off from um, PAC, which I think was Sundays then. And then I'd do a session with them on Fridays and they would do a session on their own, which I'd set up. So I ended up coaching three. And that happened for three or four years. I actually even traveled with them to nationals and some other trips. And yeah. then Mark moved from Yale and became, he was an assistant coach. Uh, sorry, he was a women's head coach at Yale. He moved to Stanford and then he came on board and said, look, 
I'd love for you to be still be involved. And so there was just, obviously just quickly on that. that. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, Stanford is one of those examples of a program that, um, like you said, it, in 1998 is when it first got started. I mean, now right. we can look back and that's a 20 year history. But, you know, during that time and, and you getting more involved, were you also um, it sounds like you're you're definitely helping them on court. But were you also advising them on, on how to navigate, you know, growing the program or um, not yet uh, since you weren't? Not, as not really. Not yeah. really. I am. Um, you know, the, the- so, I mean, that's a huge credit to the, the team itself. Uh, if that was player driven, you know, like oh, they were, they were amazing. I mean, the, the, the two, um, the two guys that started it, um, Jason and, and Mark, Mark Goldson and Jason, I, I'm forgetting Jason's last name, but they, they started the, the program and they really, I mean, all, you know, and obviously they were full-time students at the time, but they did yeah. a phenomenal job on a shoestring, absolutely yeah. on a shoestring. Um, uh, we would, you know, travel and it would be a couple of rental cars and it would be, we'd try and get air, air miles and cheap flights. Um, uh, I mean, they, it was amazing. And then when they left, you know, the, the baton got passed on to the next, it was really, it was completely driven by the captains completely. Yeah. And they did a great job. And I remember one year we, I can't remember which, we won, uh, the men's D division. Um, yeah. Out of Yale, um, which was was awesome, um, um, but um, and then Mark, you know, Mark came on board, and just when Mark came on board, or just before, they were building a new athletic facility, and they were going to put. I think they were going to put four and four in four racquetball and four squash, and Mark convinced them to put seven squash courts in. Instead, and Mark also, con- or gave, they also gave Mark the opportunity to go varsity with the women's program that had just started a couple of years earlier, and they couldn't go varsity with the men because of because of Title Nine, which yeah. yeah, which you know about. Um, and obviously, then it's just gone, it's just gone from strength to strength. Mark's obviously been uh, done a you know kudos to him; he's done a huge job with that. And then, so we were always Mark and I were always in contact yes yeah, so you know, I mean, prior week. to you jumping on full full time you were pretty i mean you were there from the beginning um yeah oh yeah i i'm i was there but i know i know they did have another coach for one year um but that that didn't didn't pan out so i think um i think the program was either a year or 18 months old when i got on board and i was i guess their part-time coach until I think my last season was 2004 and then I'm pretty certain Mark came on in 2005 and was, um, and then perhaps the ladies, the women's team maybe have gone varsity the year after. Cause I remember a couple of years after I was working with the men's, um, the women's team was formed again, a club yeah. team. And then it, you know, and from then obviously it's gone from strength to strength. And unfortunately, yeah, I mean, there still isn't an opportunity, yeah, for men to go varsity because of Title Nine. But um, so Mark and I were always in conversation. And then um, when things were, when I, when things changed at Redwood Shores, Mark said, "Well, you know, what are you going to do?" Um, and, and I said, "Well, I don't really know." Um, he said, well, you know, I could do with some help. How do you feel about if we can figure it out? And it took us a while to figure it out, how yeah. to raise the money. But, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. 
and that's really how it came about. So it wasn't as if it was all new to me because I'd worked with the men's team, um, but I'd never obviously it'd already been I'd already it was never a full time position, only on a part time basis. And so so, then, so you shifted basically from uh, servicing multiple clubs, you know, and um, you know members, whether it's junior players, adult players, and everything, and then you shifted towards college. Like, how was that? Uh, was that an easy transition? Were you excited? Uh, like, w- w- and what were some of the changes that that or uh, that you noticed? I think, to be honest with you, I never really changed. And the reason <laughs> I never really, I, ne- I never really changed, was because one of the first things, some of the people that were hugely responsible in bringing me to Stanford. Um, were really good friends of mine and um, basically chaired my position. And I'd promised those people, um, one of the, I guess guess promised is probably, yeah, I guess I had promised those people that I would, um, because by the time I'd left Stanford, the junior program was really exploding. I remember in 2000 or 2001, I ran the first, I'm pretty certain it was the first ever junior tournament in the Bay Area. And I, I struggled after a huge effort to get 30 kids to play in the tournament, which was huge. And, you know, and then now, you know, a bronze tournament in California probably has over 100 kids. Yeah. And, and obviously squash, junior squash has exploded. Um, so anyway, by the, so that was 2001. And by the time I left in 2000, 2010, I had a really, really big, successful junior program that, you know, and all, obviously all the other clubs have started as well. So one of the promises that I made to the two of the brother gentlemen that chaired my position, who were brothers, happened to be brothers, great guys. I, they said, well, Richard, would you run it? Will you? And I coached their children. Would you run a junior? If you moved to Stanford, would you run a junior program? So I said, mm-hmm. of course, you know, and um, a lot of my juniors from Redwood Shores followed me to Stanford. So how far, like how far away is it? Um, it's probably, uh, a, maybe a 20 minute drive, maybe eight, 10 miles. So far, far enough to be a bit inconvenient. Um, but, um, so really the reason I say I never really change is because when I went to Stanford, there was a, obviously a pretty much a strong community and they had Peninsula League into club leagues. But I went on board, even though it wasn't really part of my job description, I just said to Mark, look, nobody's really taking care of the club side at Stanford. You know, the, there isn't any, there aren't any round robins or and there isn't really anyone. It's hard for him because obviously he's running two teams. I said, I'll take care of all the memberships. And so really I ended up, kind of running the club and teaching all my juniors on top of the work with the team. <laughs> so, it, you so, know, and and that's, could anyone join, um, you, you said club, but th- that means yeah, like the, yeah. the regular you, agreement. Could anyone join? Yeah, you don't, you didn't have to have an affiliation with Stanford to join the squash club. If you had an affiliation, if you were an alum or obviously student staff or faculty, you automatically had access to the course. If you weren't one of those, you could join the squash club and you would have a, a membership card um, and you would have um, booking privileges for the course. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and but the, but the big thing as well is obviously Mark and I would raise 
Mark is much better than this than I am. I said, Mark and I would raise all the money. We were pretty much self-sufficient, although we would get some money from Stanford. Pretty much most of the money we would raise for the program. And yeah. so the club fees would help us run our program and go towards supporting. So I felt it was a big issue for us. I felt it was um, deserved focus. That, yeah, that wasn't being supported, and we needed to support it. And I, I'm a big. Uh, I'm, I guess Can I ask I'm a, a big question. Softy. Can I ask sure. a quick question on that? Um, and I just want to show the comparison. Like, can you can you do some before, you know, Richard Elliott at Stanford stats and then some post? <laughs> and, and I'm sure you don't want to brag or or that kind of stuff. But, you know, it just it just highlights kind of what I've always said that, um, you know, teaching professionals and coaches are the lifeline of the support. And, right. you know, the before and after picture is really pretty stark sometimes. Right. Um, I don't know specific numbers but one I, I, I'll give you one stat that I'm very proud of um, mm-hmm. and I'm, I don't want to um, blow my own horn but I'm proud of when I went to Stanford there wasn't a junior program yeah and right now um, so I started some clinics I started some some Sunday clinics like I'd ran like the, the same as I'd ran at Rebel Chores and I ran um three groups of clinics. Well, I started off, I think I started off with one group and I have some people help and I'd start off with um, 15 kids in one generic clinic. I think they were all levels. By the time but now, um, I've just kind of handed over those clinics to Nick, Mark Sum, because I now when I finished, I had three clinics, 20 kids in each clinic, so 60 kids in that program. On top of those 60 kids, that does not include the 20 kids that have private lessons with me or 25 kids. So there's probably from zero juniors at Stanford. By the time I've moved on, I would say there's probably 75 to 80 juniors in that program. And that's something I'm very proud of. Yeah. As um, you should be. You know, and yeah. Again, what, what do you and, think? And, and, why do you think... Um, you know, in terms of that growth, like what do you, what do you think was contributing towards that? I mean, were you actively going out or was it just, no, no, that's not at all. So this I, is I pretty much organic growth. It was, yeah, it was always, um, it was all word of mouth. You yeah. know, I, I, the, the nucleus of the kids that I had at Stanford were a lot of the, the, the were the ones that had followed me over from Redwood Shores Mm-hmm. And then, to be perfectly honest, a lot of those kids got really too strong for the clinics. You know, they, they although I would do um, what I called improver, intermediate, advanced, a lot of these the kids at, at Redwood Shores now were just pretty soon were too. In fact, a lot of them now helped me with the clinics, helped me run them. But it started, and then there were, you know, there were lots of the kids from the community of Stanford people that were members of the club. Oh, Richard, you run thing with, with junior stuff. And it's, it's all about momentum. You get some kids starting and then people hear of it. Obviously, um, the Bay Area is incredibly cosmopolitan. And even if it, lots of people know squash from all over the world, they come here obviously because Silicon Valley's here. So a lot of people heard squash, didn't really know there was squash. And then they find out their squash at Stanford through either word of mouth from their kids at school. Oh, Johnny plays squash. Or so it literally, no, it was zero, zero promotion. It was, and, and one thing I was going to say is in the clinics, uh, I had 50, I had 60 kids by the end. It was instead of 50, it was supposed to be, I probably turned 15 to 20 kids away that I just couldn't, we just didn't have the bandwidth to take any more on. 
Oh wow! So you're so, you're yeah, over capacity. Yeah, yeah, the point. Yeah, with just too many. You know, I yeah. I I said I wanted fifteen in a group. I ended up with most groups. There was eighteen to twenty, and I'd probably say no with private lessons as well. And to get, then, I, then more often I'd say yes, but just because we there were just too many, you know, yeah. which was great. And hopefully those kids um, got the opportunity. I a lot of those kids I'd try and hook up into other clinics at Redwood Shores or. Santa Clara or whatever because they wanted to play and I just didn't and the last thing I'd want as a pro who absolutely loves the game and everything about the last thing I want is those kids not to get the opportunity at least to try it some exposure you know right Um, so so I would try and if I could direct them somewhere else and the growth of of squash in Bay Area is I mean obviously we're not we're not the east coast but um, it's growing exponentially out here which is awesome yeah. Awesome to say. Um, I know, I mean, you, so you've been, um, in, in the United States almost, I mean, pretty much your, the majority of your coaching. Yeah, 20, tw- 22 years now. Yeah. 22 yeah. years. Yeah. You know, and so, uh, I mean, you've seen, um, there's obviously been a huge amount of changes in the sport yeah. itself massive, over that time frame. Massive, yeah. yeah. Massive. One, I, I want to ask you, like, what do you think are some of the, the obvious changes and and then I want to talk about some of the unnoticed changes that. The, well, the, the, yeah, the obvious changes. I mean, we've just talked about it. Is the explosion in junior squash? I mean, it's 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 grown just exponentially on the east coast specifically, but also you know in the west coast and other regions too. I think a lot of that is driven by initially was driven by the change um, from hardball at college to softball, which was in the early 90s. And then um, the prep schools going to, on the East Coast, going to softball squash as well. But obviously, a lot of it has been driven by, it's it's an opportunity for kids to get into a good college. Colleges, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, obviously, that's, that's what's, it's all been driven by that. Uh, I'm a, you can call me naive and call me a purist. <laughs> I don't think that's the real, I don't think that's the, the, I think that should be a byproduct and not the real reason. I think the reason, and you know how I feel, I love the sport. I think it's a phenomenal game. I'm a, incredibly biased, but I think the vast, vast majority of people that play squash are really good people. Obviously, that's a you know a sweeping statement, but I honestly believe that. There's a lot of, in my opinion, and I've played squash all over the world. Um, it's great exercise. It doesn't take an awful lot of time. It's fun. Um, so to me, I, and I, and it's a sport that you can play for an awful long time. Um, to be driven by a college, by a college, uh, you know that that doesn't sit that well with me. I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of circular in that respect that. Like you said, I've seen a lot of like-minded people get into squash, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. there are differences within that, but um, you know. So I think the college was a strong driver, but then people could be doing it and hating it and go away from the sport. But instead, it, it people get into it, you know. And then yeah. um, when they grow up, then they have their kids get into it, and so the, the circle and the pie just yeah. continues to grow. Yeah. If you and obviously because of the, I guess the biggest change is because of the explosion in junior squash and obviously even if parents don't have money for their own lessons they will find they will make away revenue for their kids lessons obviously that's just how it works and so 
I mean, if you go to the US Open or any of the, really any of the goals or JCTs, the coaching talent that's at those facilities is phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's, it's like pretty. A, it's, like, it, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a who's who of squash. I mean, literally, <laughs> it's, right. it's phenomenal. You know, yeah, and obviously, it's, it's crazy. That would never happen. That, you know, 10 years ago, you'd got, you know, obviously the, the numbers just weren't there. It's, it, it's changed dramatically. And, uh, the, the 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 revenue you know the numbers that I mean I don't know if anyone's ever looked at it but the numbers would be that for lessons camps clinics mm-hmm. tournaments I mean that's a huge money spinner I guess to me that's been the biggest change the number of kids participating the number of kids traveling myself I mean obviously I'm I'm I travel a ton with my juniors uh, you know JCTs and U.S. Opens, uh, I go, and um, everybody's pretty much, it's almost like um, who's not there as opposed to who is there, you know? It's right. that, mm. you know, it's a, it's a who's who of squash. So they're for not, and just the the scale of the tournaments. I was just at the U.S. Open. Um, yes, I had been for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah four, four venues, maybe a 1,000 kids, 1,200 kids. I don't know how many there were, but it, it's a big deal. It's a real big deal, and obviously U.S. squash has done a, uh, an amazing job to to keep that growth and and how it's scaled is is phenomenal really and then what do you think um you know are some of the unnoticed changes that you've uh, unknown Ooh. yeah unnoticed sort of like you unknown. see a culture a culture shift or um that's a difficult one um I would say obviously one of the things that is noticed but maybe is under the radar is perhaps the pressure the kids feel to perform, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm and I'm That's always trying. I'm always trying to. I'm al- I'm always trying to day- downplay that with the kids. You know, yeah. um, you know, it has to be fun too. It's got to be fun, especially. Yeah, it's a little bit different, I think, as the kids get older, but especially when they start, the younger kids. You know, I'm a I'm a strong believer in diversifying, getting kids to play other sports, not just squash. And then, because I feel that, and this is one thing I said, you know, one of the reasons I I like, if I couldn't get the kids into my clinics because we were just maxed out, was try and redirect those kids so they got exposure to the sport. But I also think kids should have exposure to lots of sports because ultimately, whatever you enjoy the most is what you're going to excel at. You know, and and mm-hmm. it has to to you know it can't you can't do something and and you're not going to fall in love with something if, if if you're doing it for someone else. So along that, like, let's take an example of a junior. You know, and I mean, what? How do you how do you um, practice what you preach in that respect? Well, one one of the things I remember is, and I'm not going to name names, but I, I had a. a a boy that I used to coach, and he had various coaches. That wasn't his main coach, but a great player, played for the US. He's off at college now, but he was a good tennis player too. And I can remember his parents saying to me, you know, Richard, do you think he should, do you think he should, you know, this was maybe when he was 14 or 15, just said, they said, do you think he should um, specialise now? And I, I said, no, I, don't, I honestly don't think that. I think if he likes, if he likes his tennis, I actually think it as assuming that he's not affecting technique and he can manage both and he did manage both very well because I guess he'd learned both 
concurrently? I said, no, I don't think he should stop. I think if he likes his tennis and he has fun with it, he'll let him make the call. Let him make the call when he doesn't want to play tennis. You know, if someone's eight or nine or 10, let them try everything. Let them figure out what they like. You know, if they like baseball, as boring as it may be for your parents to sit there for three hours to work, let them try it. Let them do everything because, you know, kids have got to be kids. You know, they've got to, it's got to be fun. And that's what I I see a lot of, a lot of kids being channeled into squash. And I think, and a lot of it is because of college. Well, kids shouldn't be thinking about college when they're eight, nine, 10, 11. You know, there's enough pressure on them. That's where I think, that's where I think the, you can, you can diffuse the pressure somewhat if squash is not the be all or any sport is not the be all and end all. If they're doing multiple right. things, that's how I. That's how I would try. To, well, I think that's one way to diffuse it. Yeah, I mean that's um, you know I think because I mean squash squash and passion are so closely tied together, right? And right, it you know I, I think very similar. When I was coaching, I would do the same thing. I would say go go take a lesson with someone else. Like if I'm the only vehicle or yeah. mechanism for you yeah. learning the sport, yeah. you know yeah. that's. Um, I hope you like it, but you know, make sure you, you really are invested in this. And yeah, you know, one of the one of the taglines that um, really resonated with me was when U.S. Squash. You know, we shifted through a lot of branding process, but you know, one of the last taglines we had was "Fit for Life." And really, right. I think what yeah, you said. Exactly. I think what you said of like, if college is the end game, then we all lose, right? I mean, right. I'm, we're trying to get people into the sport for for life, right. and that's that's uh, it's, it's and daunting. Just to- just to reiterate what you said, you know, a lot of a lot of pros are very um, sensitive about their kids going elsewhere, and I think yeah. it should be exactly the opposite. You know, they're very, very a lot of pros. All I, and I'm not going to are very territorial. Uh, to be honest, I'm the opposite. You know, I think if kid, I, I think kids should go again. It's another way to diffuse it. And one thing coming back to one thing you said earlier. A different coach could say exactly the same I'm saying in a different way and get his point across. Right, I tell right. the kids, I tell the kids, go, listen to what they've got to say. I said, and you know, and, and I say to the kids, you're smart enough. Figure out what works for you. Take a piece of what I'm saying, a piece of what Joe or Fred said, and and try and develop yourself. But being territorial and sensitive about sensitive about kids going elsewhere is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And it also, again, like you said, it's another way of feeling pressure for them. And one right. way to diffuse it is to, is, to, is to move them, is to let them exposure to different clubs and different, different coaches. I, I'm a huge yeah. believer in that. And I would never, you know, and some coaches just don't have that. And I think that's wrong. I think, and I, think, I kind of think that's a little bit sad because I think that's a little bit of their insecurity. Well, I think part of it is also, you know, may, maybe different pressures coming from different places and right. playing playing more of a short game versus a long game. I mean, uh, for a lot of coaches, they look at it like each customer is worth a certain amount and I want to retain them yeah. and, and grow it, you know, versus yeah. the long game. Like it's all going to come back and, and really doing it for those reasons. So Exactly. For the right reasons. You know what? If, yeah. if, it, if, it, if it comes back and if you look up, if you treat the, ki- the kids how – or anybody, how you would like to be treated with respect and, and and you take an interest, it will come back. You know, it will come back. And, and the, the most of the parents, 
that I speak to a lot of mine, it really isn't about how what the kids win, you know, or what ranking they get. It's about, you know, helping to mentor these kids and that's where sport and squash in general is a is a, a great way to learn sportsmanship. Right. Dedication, work ethic, you know, um, adversity. It's a sh- I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but those things are life lessons. And yeah. as, as a coach, I think those things are more important than what a t- what tournament a kid wins or what ranking he gets to. To me, that's much more important. Well, it goes back to, uh, I guess, what um, you, you realize at an early age. It's about process, not outcome. Exactly. You know, and that's a you know, and and I was probably the worst culprit. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> oh, it's very but, hard. Yeah. Yeah. It is impossible, but you know what? And that's why I always try and with the kids, if you, if you can use yourself as an as a, a example and almost chastise yourself for doing it, and then they realize, well, you know what? It's not just me. I'm not just the one that, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I've had kids work, worked, um, match ball up. And two love up and lost it. I said, you know what? I remember in a in a Essex League match, I was two zero up and eight one up and lost. And it, then it was to yeah. nine. And, and you, we've all done it. And yeah. the ironic thing was, I played the guy uh, in the away match, and exactly the same thing could have happened in the home match. Again, I was two love up. I was maybe eight two up. I, ser- I, I served, and the serve hit the nick to win the match. Now, to me, that is irony right there. But you know what? You, 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 you know, and he looked at me, he couldn't believe it because he's muttering under his breath. He said, oh, he's, I can remember him saying, so here we go again, just, just trying to, you know, psych me out of it. And he was obviously an old, experienced player. But I've said to the kids, you know, we all do it. The key is you learn from it and you learn. Right. I was all about the outcome. It was all about winning. And I, and I, and I choked on myself. But so if you, I think if you can use yourself as examples and almost make fun of yourself, and, right. and again, you, we're talking about diffusing that pressure and, and, and trying to get them to realize experience, there is no, and again, it's a cliche, there's no substitute for experience. Yeah, I mean, handle it. well, um, you know, and, and I think there were some scary words you can use sometimes of like every success story is just a series of failures beforehand. Yeah. And, and talking about failure is, it's, it can be uncomfortable sometimes, but really it's like, those are learning moments and and it's what you, and and it's what you learn along the way, whether it's getting better about squash or, or life, it's like, they're pretty, uh, uh, strong learning moments. Yeah. And I think like one of the things, um, about having those defeats and having those losses is how you react to it. Right. You know what you can you you can react negatively and say, "Oh, I'm never going to be any good at this, and this is he's always going to be better." And and I choke. Or you can say, "You know what? I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to make sure, to the best of my ability, next time I react in a different way, and I'm not going to. This it's either half full or half empty. And and yeah. and in life, everybody that everybody that does well has had failures. But the reason they, they've been successful is because they pick themselves up, dust themselves down, and just say, you know what? 
Um, my forehand let me down today. I made so many mistakes on my drop shot. I'm going to practice that drop shot and I'm going to make sure I relax when I play it and not think about the winner. I'm going to work on it. It's, it's how right. you look at it. It's all about how you react to adversity and not just the minute you have you let yourself down. I don't like using the word failure, but you mess up. How do you react? How do you, how do you come back? How do you yeah. adjust yourself and get up? It's been, um, you know, like, uh, like I said, learning, um, you learn more from your losses uh, than you do your wins. Absolutely. The wins you kind of like, Ooh, I got away with that one. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> your, your, your losses, you know, drives it. It fuels you. It, yeah. It's what can I do differently next time? Exactly. What am I going to do? Am I going to, and even, and I'm not just talking about um, these things happen as adults too. I remember I'd lost in a lot of, I lost in a lot of big finals, you know, county championships and, and played, I played a lot of master squash and I kept get being in England. We say, um, I got fed up being the bridesmaid and not the bride, <laughs> um, which is, a, and, and then eventually I won, you know, I won a, the, the masters and then, Again, it was I could have I could have I lost I think I lost a couple of finals and I could have but I thought you know what no I'm gonna and then I won four or five in a row but it was you know that's that's like you say you learn more from your losses but it's 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 about how you pick yourself up and dust yourself down and say you know I'm not going to give up I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with this and I'm gonna make sure next time I react differently I'm gonna try and be calmer and I'm going to try not to think about the end goal, but just think one shot at a time. Like, you know, there's a, there's a book called uh, the power of now and it's about staying in, um, staying in the moment, you know, not getting ahead of yourself and what's happened. What's already happened is irrelevant. It has no relevance on what's going to happen. The only thing that matters is what's happening now. And I'm a strong believer in that. Near the end of our conversation, Richard and I start sharing our vision for both our new venture. In the next interview we do with Richard, we will do a deep dive on his program, both in what he hopes to accomplish, but also his process for going about launching this program and building the center. Because this kind of wraps up, you know, I think um, this can go. Yeah, well, and I think that these are, so going back to, here's my vision for Squash Radio. I really want for imagine for a parent and there's a lot of people right now there's a strong amount of affluence in the sport right but there's also a lot coming around of people that want to get into it and as we grow the access or the access and awareness well where are you going to go to for good coaching and i think that kids listening to this and like really you know they're gonna have to listen to it 10 15 times but hearing the same (laughs) messaging you know from everywhere you realize it's true and i remember um like i knew i should always volley and squash right just, I don't know. I didn't. And it was finally one coach that said, are you going to f- volley? If you're not get off the court. And I was like, Oh, you know, uh, um, you know what? I was exactly the same. I was so, I don't ask me what, I guess, you know what, because you have to take yourself out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And as you know, when people don't, you know, ch- change is hard and, and ha- old habits die hard. And I, I was exactly the same. So it's, it's a common thing. It's also like, when are you, you know, these things in life, you know, I think there's talent and there's work ethic and the people that have the talent, um, you know, to a certain extent, I both envy and also feel bad for them because at a point when the person that wants to work harder, they're going to win. So, you know, for me, I I actually have a different take on that. Oh yeah. And my take is that work ethic is a phenomenal talent. Oh, very interesting. 
because I think having a, a strong work ethic is a huge, huge talent. And when someone, you know, I think it's a bit of an oxymoron. When people say someone's talented, that, you know, if someone refers to someone that's talented at squash, they've naturally got good hands and good feel. When I say someone's talented, I do. Have they got, to me, work ethic is the huge, is the biggest talent. Because, you know what, you can, all right, it's difficult to get real good touch and feel, but like you said, you can work. If you've got a good basics, you can build that stuff. Yeah, I like it. Well, so, I mean, these are great lessons and it's like, how do you, what I realized is trying to get things at scale. There's a certain cap to how many people you can reach physically, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah and I'm like, exactly, yeah. Let's capture this once and hopefully, you know, over five years, I bet over a thousand people will listen to it, you know? Well, I mean, <laughs> hoping more, if, but. If, if five kids listen to it and it yeah. helps them, it's a, it's been worthwhile. You know, yeah, if absolutely. a kid figures it out and um, that we said about the club, which, uh, I, well, you know, it, if we can get, you know, people say to me, what's the ultimate goal of your, um, the program that you're doing? Our disadvantage program is called Squash on Track and the club is called Squash Sun. And people said, oh, is your ultimate goal, um, would a success be in getting a kid into college? And I said, no, that's not, a, that, that's not to me. That would be a byproduct. If I can, what would be an ultimate goal of me, of Squash on Track, is that we can get kids to come through our program, hopefully graduate high school, and then come back and pay it forward and mentor the kids in squash on track and come back and say, Richard, I realized how good this program was for me and come back and help the next generation. That to me would be a success. If the kid yeah. gets in a college, that's a bonus, but it's not about, it's not about them going to getting a, a scholarship at a good school. It's about them realizing how much a huge influence our program made on their life and them wanting to give back to those next, next, the next um, crop of kids coming through that that's what I consider a success and keeping kids off of the street, out of gangs, off of drugs. That is, is how I would, how I'm going to measure out whether, whether we're successful or not. In this last part of the interview, we take full advantage of Richard's coaching expertise and dive into some practical advice for any player looking to improve their game. All right. Now to switch gears a little bit and go into, um, you know, take advantage of you being one of the best coaches in the U.S. Let's get in some practical advice we could give here. And let's take your average club squash player and you had to give some practical advice. What would you say would be the best things for them to do to improve, to go from where they are now to their next level? Um, I think solo practice would be huge. Mm -hmm. um, I would say making sure they work on the fundamentals of their game, the basics, because it's like a house. If the foundations are poor, then it's not going to stay up. So I think working on, on basic technique and repetition, preferably not in too much pressure situations to start with, which is why I like solo practice. Obviously getting some getting some instruction initially so you don't start bad habits too soon. And I think the, the, the biggest advice is work at the things that you're not good at. Don't work at the things you're good at. And it's, it's easy when you go and practice if you're really good at volley nicks, but you can't dig the ball out the back corner. Or work at, work at what you're not good at. Spend the time investing in if you can't hit the ball straight on your forehand, it always pulls out or whatever. But put the put the the work ethic, effort, and the repetition into the areas of your sport. Maybe it's conditioning. Maybe you you can you've got good foundations. 
but you're tired or like we talked, maybe you don't volley. Work at the things you're not good at, not at the things you are good at. And so let's drive in. I, I agree that soloing is definitely um, mm. one of the key doses of medicine that, that players need. What would you, if you were to prescribe something and being realistic about, you know, um, someone's not going to do it seven days a week. So what would be a realistic prescription for, uh, let's say, a three and six month period? I would say make sure a minimum of four sessions a week of some kind of squash is you're going to improve. I think mm. two or th- three times, to be honest, I think you may keep your level up. I don't think you can improve. So getting on court four or five times a week is a must. And I would try and make sure at least one of those sessions, if it's not a lesson, is making time to do some solo, preferably maybe more, maybe two sessions a week. Um, and also playing is the best practice. But before you play someone, maybe do some maybe do some drilling first. Do work a little bit on some straight drives or, you know, just the basics and then play afterwards. But don't just go to the court and just always play games and try and incorporate in your weekly routine some solo practice. I think it makes a huge difference. Well, to, to borrow a famous line from your former uh, co-coach, um, Mark Talbot, he said uh, one of the biggest differences between him and the recreational player is they play squash to get in shape versus right. Mark gets in shape to play squash. Play squash, um, yeah, it's huge. It's huge. It's huge. But, and I, I think people, like you say, a lot of people, especially club players, don't realize that. Doing yeah. the, the substitute work off court um, means, A, you have less injuries, and two, you're a better squash player. I mean, again, we're talking about a player that is 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 – crossing that threshold from like, you know, I really enjoy this too. I really want to market. Want to get better. I want to improve. improve. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you sound like you're putting in the work, but then, so uh, in a solo session, um, like how long would you recommend and what would be the progression? You know, I don't recommend, I don't recommend a duration. What Mm. I always say to people is do it for as long as you can focus. Because if the focus, and if for some people, 20 minutes is as much as they can do. But if you're focused in that 20 minutes and you're really concentrating on your form and your technique, that's probably going to be enough. For someone else, and they, that person may be pretty strong-willed and pretty self-disciplined. Maybe they can do an hour. But you, that's, that's personal preference, and you know yourself. I always say to the kids, make sure you try and do Whenever you're doing it, make sure your attention to detail and make sure you're doing the best you can. And if that, for you, if that's 15, 20 minutes, that's all you can do, do that, but just try and do more 15, 20 minute sessions as opposed to doing an hour and the last 40 minutes basically being completely tuned out and not, not, and not working at fixing what you think are the, are the problems with your form. You know, it, it's a, and everybody's different. Everybody's different. You know, you have to figure out what works for you. Maybe you're the sort of person that can't do hours or 45 minutes in a row, but maybe before you go and play, you can get to the club earlier and every time you play, maybe you can do 10 or 15 or 20 minutes on your own. Um, You know, like I said, that's why I say it's going to different coaches. You've got to figure out, everybody's different. You've got to figure out what works for you and and what's going to help your game and make you a better player. Um, and that's why I think it's good. To, that's why I like people, I like my kids going to different coaches because everyone's got a different spin on it. 
to, to be honest, I think a lot of us coaches say the same things. It's just a different way of getting it across. But then, you know, the people have to figure it out for themselves. And that's, you know, that's a maturity thing with the kids, especially when I mean, I'm referring a lot to kids because I don't coach that many adults, some. But um, that's something you have to figure out. It's, this is fun for me. I love the sport. And if this encourages some kids to play or helps, you know, some adults, you know, play and have more fun, it's about having fun, enjoying the sport. Totally. And, and I, like I said, we know, we, we know that because we do love it. And um, if we can get more, um, more exposure for the sport and get the people that are exposed to it enjoying it even more, then that's even better still. Thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun. Mm-hmm.